Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things whatever they tell you. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. It's okay. Just put it down. There you go. I think the proudest I've ever been of my dad was also the moment when I saw him at his most angry and his most afraid. So we were at an anniversary party for an aunt and uncle of mine. This is at least 10 years ago because my niece, who's now a senior at Dowling, could only have been five or maybe six at the time. And we were in a venue none of us had ever been in before, and we kind of got lost inside. So we went in one door, but when we came out at the end of the night, we went out a different door than we'd come in. And that would have been fine, except that that door opened immediately onto the street. And so my niece went bounding out the door, off the curb, and into oncoming traffic. So my dad leaped out. He was the one closest to her. And he leaped out, and he kind of, it was, it was athletic for an 80-year-old man, right? He leaped forward and kind of used his momentum to throw her backwards. And he was so close that his back actually brushed against the side of the car. Now, when he grabbed her, he yanked her hard. It actually looked like it dislocated her shoulder. It didn't. But it was one of those situations where afterwards, the grown-ups all look around and go, nobody called DHS, right? <laughs> but it was, but it was, it was pull her arm or let her get hit by the car, right? And so, so, unfortunately, poor little Ellie, she never saw the car. So she was scared to death. 
but not of the car. Grandpa. So, so dad got down on his knees in front of her, and she's kind of hiding behind her mom's skirts. And he says, sweetheart, come out here. And she didn't want to come out. Sweetheart, really, I need to talk to you. So she peeks her head around, and he says, does your arm hurt? And she's kind of rubbing her shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I'm very sorry I hurt your arm, but I'd rather you have a hurt arm than get hit by a car. She didn't understand that right away, but she came back later, breakfast one morning. I don't know if she had a dream about it or what happened, but she came out and she simply said to dad, Grandpa, thank you. I'd rather have a sore arm than get hit by a car too. Our parents, or whoever raised us, are the first experience most of us have, both of authority on the one hand and of obedience on the other. The authority given to a parent over a child is rooted in human nature. It literally comes from nature, from God who designed it in this way and for this purpose. Even those who deny the existence of God recognize that the parent has primary responsibility. That's why it's considered irresponsible if you have kids that you can't support. And because the parent is the one who has primary responsibility for the raising of the child, that parent is then afforded rights, those rights which give them the freedoms necessary in order to fulfill the responsibilities, right? So rights always come with commensurate responsibilities. You can't hold someone responsible for that which you did not permit them to do. When a parent fails profoundly in their responsibilities toward their children, we call them a bad parent. And when a child fails profoundly in their responsibility, their duty of obedience toward the parent, we'll actually say they're a bad kid, with all due respect to Father Flanagan and bad boys, right? And so... So, so we can tell whether someone is succeeding at the job of parent or succeeding at the job of child by their exercise of their responsibility. If you mess up badly enough as a parent, you can have your parental rights terminated because you failed in the duty of care and the responsibility that the right was designed for to begin with. You with me so far? It's important because last week we talked about solidarity. The, the firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. Huh? So a, a, a perpetual disposition toward the common good, which means putting ourselves in intentional relationships with people that otherwise we have no natural relationship with so that we can identify with the people in the Holy Land right now who are suffering. That's solidarity. Well, solidarity, which is at the root of the church's social teaching, which informs most of our teaching around poverty and war and immigration and relations between nations, right? Solidarity has a kind of a twin sister, another principle which helps to shape it and balance it out, and that's called subsidiarity. Say that with me. Subsidiarity, okay? So subsidiarity is, is the idea that the competent authority closest to a situation is the one best equipped to respond to that situation. Sometimes this gets shorthanded simply as uh, no big government or something like that. That's close, but not quite the idea. And the reason why is important if we want to understand why Jesus says what he does in today's gospel. The idea behind subsidiarity is not just don't overly centralize your government. It's that authority is predicated or based on relationships. 
so that the authority that a parent has over the child is natural given the relationship of parent to child. The authority that a teacher has over a student in a classroom is predicated on the authority of the teacher in the classroom. It's based on the relationship. It's not random. It's not that the janitor is at random coming in and giving the children directions. It's that the person responsible for their education is, right? The boss, whoever they are, is the natural authority at work. The boss probably has a boss too, who may or may not be on site, but who's put up the capital to make the business run, and so on. And of course, in the church, the pastor of the parish is the most natural authority for most of us in the local church. The pastor has a boss too, the bishop. But that the bishop can't just give me orders because he happens to occupy a particular office downtown. It's because of the relationship that we have here in the local church. What the scribes and the Pharisees get wrong is not the exercise of their authority. It's that they failed in the relationship. So Jesus is not rejecting the authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus rather presumes their authority. They sit, he says, on the seat of Moses. So do whatsoever they tell you. But their authority is also what condemns them. Because they tie up heavy burdens which they lay on others' backs and do not lift a finger to help them. The problem is not that the scribes and the Pharisees are illegitimate or even that the authority that they exercise is poorly executed. It's that they don't have a care over the people they're responsible for. Now, I'll be honest on this one. I know that I can place heavy burdens on you. I am keenly aware of this. I'm tougher on you than most other priests are on their people. And we've had a tougher financial situation here than most other parishes ever endure. I, I am keenly aware of that. But like St. Paul, no one can ever say that I put a burden on you that I wouldn't help lift myself. I put myself out there for you on purpose, and I'm not doing this to puff up my own character, but because when I experience failure in leadership, here and in the rest of my life, it's almost always because I've gotten my subsidiarity and my solidarity mixed up. I'm willing and happy to be in charge of the stuff that I think is rightly mine, but I'm not always willing to identify with the people that I'm in charge of. And when I fail to identify with the people I'm in charge of, I tend to make mistakes. This passage also has that famous line, right, which our Protestant friends will often use to, to tease us and say that we don't take the scripture seriously. Call no man on earth your father. Ain't that funny, Father Mac? Yeah, it is. Also, Jesus says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. And I don't see that many one-eyed, one-handed evangelical preachers. Clearly, Jesus is not telling us to not call anyone father as a, as a grammatical item. Otherwise, you're all sinning, calling your dad, daddy. That's not the point here. And also, we'd have to come up with some other name for the person who runs the classroom your kid's in. That's not what's at stake here. What's at stake is much more profound. It's not less. I can only be rightly called father inasmuch as I exercise paternity over the parish in my care. And in fact, the analogy of fatherhood is so profound, it actually works the other way around. So we didn't come to call God our father because we reflected a lot on our relationship to God and it, and it made sense, say, to the prophets. We can only call God our father because Jesus has revealed it himself. 
The analogy is this. Our earthly fathers, or our spiritual fathers, are only father insofar as they are reflective of God the Father. This is why when people have trouble sometimes with father language around God, there's a great kind of confusion. The problem isn't that you don't know what it means to be a good father. If you had a terrible father, you know exactly what it means to have a good father. It's simply painful because your own failed at it. God has revealed himself as father, and if you caught it, St. Paul references himself as a kind of a mother. Why? What do mothers get right? Almost invariably, whatever else they get wrong with their kids, almost invariably mothers get this part right. They never forget their kid. They maintain the relationship. In fact, they presume it. The mother's authority only makes sense because she's the mother. All of us in this room, every single one, no matter how old or young, find ourselves both under authority somewhere, someplace, if nowhere else, then at least here, under mine, and possessed of authority in our homes, with our friends and family, at work, at school, at, uh, at the various social organizations we belong in. Each and every one of us exercises authority. So the question's got to be this. How am I going to use the authority that I've been given? What kind of a leader am I going to be? As I have to make difficult decisions, sometimes decisions people are going to disagree with, do I take into account the feelings of the people I'm going to hurt? Here's the thing that happens in the church. I'll give you a real, real, in living color example right here at Christ the King. Okay? We have five weekend masses, five Sunday masses every weekend, one on Saturday and four on Sunday. We only need three. You could probably do two, but we only really need three by the numbers. So if I were to cut, say, two masses, what would make sense? You'd cut the one with the least attendance, right? Well, that means the seven and the 530 go away. But 60-odd percent of my income comes from the seven and the 530. So I could do a survey with all of you and say, which masses should I cut? And I would not be able to follow it. If I did, simply follow the will of the people. If all I did was consult and then do whatever my consultants gave me, I would be sinning grievously against all of you. And here's the trick, gang. This doesn't hold me less accountable, but more. Which means that every one of us who is in authority is held to account not only by our superiors on earth or the, our, our, our constituents, that, that, you know, that, that support us. No. Every one of us in authority was put there by God and will be called to account for it by God. So when I have to choose to make a decision that is going to be unpopular or hurts people's feelings or whatever, I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of him. I have to be able to stand up and say, I made the best decision I could in conscience. Not, I did what everybody told me I ought to do. That is not just true for me. That is true for every one of you. Because what Jesus is revealing, the first reading hits on this too, is that all legitimate authority comes from God. The natural authority of parents to children, 
the authority that arises in the context of a community, a country, a nation, and in the world. And all authority in the church ultimately derives from God, which means all of us in positions of authority and all of us who report to someone in authority have a responsibility, a duty of care, and of obedience. So the question is, how are you going to use the authority that you've been given? And how are you going to respond to God when he calls and commands in the voice of the person in charge of you?